Hey friends, it's Palm Sunday, and we celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem and into the week that would change all of history. And hinged on this week is the door of eternity. So be with us as we walk with Jesus to remember how he spent his final days. And of course, it all culminates on Easter Sunday and the divine surprise that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ and that we're now invited to belong to it. Our Easter services will lift you up. They're amazing. And so we're gonna ask that you RSVP your service of choice to ensure that we have a place and a space for every person to be welcomed. It's just easy. Go to our website, note the campus and the time. I wanna first invite you to join us this Thursday night for Monday Thursday services because there is no resurrection without the crucifixion. This is my favorite service of the year, as it is for many of you. We'll step into the upper room and experience the Lord's Supper, and then we'll hear the seven last words of Jesus on the cross that are spoken for you. It's profound, and it makes Easter Sunday come alive in new ways. You can find information about our times and locations for Monday Thursday on our website. One more thing, I'm obviously not at the Chanhassen campus because today marks the official public launch of our next multi-site campus, Westwood West Tonka. I'm telling you, it has been a joy-filled journey with this campus over the last several years. We had plans to launch the campus sooner, but COVID halted those plans. And despite this, the leaders and the volunteers have been resilient. I'm so impressed. So today, I'm in Westonka with the Westonka team, sharing and celebrating with them the start of something good. So with that said, Pastor Zach will kick off our Holy Week sermon series called Rise. And as he comes forward, will you join me in thanking God for the launch of Westwood Westonka? Man. Well, we are so excited. Welcome to everyone here at Chanhassen, those with our online campus, our Bush Lake campus, and it is my honor for the very first time to welcome Westwood West Tonka. We're so glad that you're with us. God's richest blessing and provision to you. We hope and pray, uh, not only at West Tonka, but for all of us here and for all of those at all of our campuses, that maybe today this is your first time in church ever or your first time in church in a very long time. Our hope and prayer is that you will experience God's love through the community here at Westwood. So West Tonka, we're praying for you. We're cheering you on. We're so grateful for you. As Pastor Zach mentioned, my name is Zach, and I have the joy of serving here as the multi-site and micro-site pastor as well, the online campus. And we are kicking off our Holy Week with Palm Sunday. It's the day in which Jesus entered into Jerusalem, and he was met with just applause and uh, palms, of course. And as we think about, as I reflect on Jesus' entrance and the grand entrance that he had, um, I was reminded of an entrance that happened in our own family uh, just recently. Now, a little bit of context. Uh, For those of you who don't know, my wife Cassie and I, we have three kiddos. We've got Craig, who's five, Zoe, who's three, and Case, who is six months old. And uh, I've just got to say, Case, he is just a bundle of joy. He's so much fun, our newborn is. uh, But yet, he's probably the most difficult to get down when it comes to sleeping. Okay, let me just give you an example. Here you can see a photo on the screens here. This is Case most of the time, right? Everyone, one big collective, aww, right? This is literally like within the last week, he's six months old, he's smiling, he's happy, he's so charming, but here's what he looks like at two in the morning. Yeah. 
Those are real tears, y'all. Those are real tears. He's so upset. He's so frazzled in that. But we had one of these moments just a few weeks back, a a few months ago, when it was in the dead of winter. Now, here's the thing. Um, I am a heavy sleeper. Now, to say that is, is actually putting it lightly. I've been known to sleep through tornado sirens as a kid. All right, and so it was at like two in the morning that I woke up to Case screaming and belting it out at the top of his lungs. And I realized Cassie was already up and she was already in there trying to soothe him. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to be a good husband. I'm going to try and help out. Yeah, you know where this is going, right? So I, like a zombie, rolled out of bed. I'm kind of fumbling around. You know, it's middle of winter. It's dark. I'm, I'm trying to be quiet because I don't want to wake the other kids because that's just, that's when all mayhem breaks loose, when all three of them are awake. And I walked into Case's room just really quietly. I, I didn't want to startle Cassie, but he's screaming. The white noise is going. And I slowly walk up to her like a total creep, okay? <laughs> and all of a sudden, she spins around, shrieks, and goes, Ah! Announce yourself! (laughs) And she nearly karate kid crane kicked me in the face. All right? It would have been RIP. Zach was just trying to help put on his tombstone right there. Okay? That was not how you make a grand entrance when you're trying to help. It was met with confusion and startled. It was just a, a bad way to start, but that's really been our running joke. Announce yourself, Zach. That's what we've been saying throughout the last several weeks and months. But when it comes to Jesus's grand entrance, I, I think that a lot of us can have a similar response. You see, when we look at Jesus's grand entrance into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, for some of us, we're startled or we're confused. We see that within the biblical story as well. Maybe for some of us, we're like excited. We're like, yes, kind of like the kids walking up. In fact, I saw my five-year-old Craig walking up with the palms just a little bit ago, and I was up front row. I was like, yeah, Craig, get it. And he's like, dad, don't cramp my style, you know, just kind of slowly walking up there, and I'm just going bonkers for him. Uh, But then maybe for some of us, though, we kind of kind of get in this rhythm where it's like, yeah, Palm Sunday. You know, it comes around every year. It's Easter week. And, you know, it's just kind of, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here out of duty and obligation. And that's kind of your response. And let me just say, if that's you, thanks for being here. We're grateful for your presence. And we encourage you, let's lean in this together. But what I want us to look at today is really one question. Okay, how can we respond to Jesus's grand entrance? But, but not even that. How can we respond not only to Jesus's grand entrance into Jerusalem, but how can we respond to Jesus's entrance into our own personal lives. How can we respond? What does our response look like? Well, we're going to be digging into the gospel of John. It's found in the New Testament halfway through your Bibles, and we're going to look at John's uh, account of Jesus's grand entrance. And as we do, we're going to see three different responses within this story. Okay, we would first of all see the crowd's response. Now, these are people who are a little bit on the fringe, right? They don't necessarily have proximity to Jesus, but we see they have a response. Second, we'll see the disciples' response. Those who are close to Jesus, his friends and followers, we'll see how they respond. And then third, the religious know-it-alls, right? And their response. The ones who had kind of this religious uh, elitism of the day. And so what I want to do is I want to invite you, as we're going through these responses, think about it. Do you have one that relates to your own life? Do you have one in which you're like, yeah, that's my response. I uh, relate to that one the most. And lean into it with us together. But let's read all of John's account of Palm Sunday, the grand entrance. Verse 12, it starts like this. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And at first, his disciples, they did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, they continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, they went out to meet him. So the Pharisees, these religious know-it-alls, they said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Okay, so we can see this story. We can see it unfolding before our very eyes. And we can see three major responses. But first, let's look at the crowd's response and, and how the crowd responded to, to Jesus. And, and so really quick, just a little context. Uh, there were a lot of people coming into Jerusalem for this religious festival called the Passover. And so these were people who had probably heard about Jesus, but they might not have had a really close encounter with him. But they had heard of the things that he was doing. And so they rushed out to the countryside to meet him with palm branches. And then they started to shout out, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is our king. And so what are the palm branches? Why are they important? Well, a little bit of a history lesson. It'll be an important history lesson. I'll try not to bore you with it, but bear with me. Okay, the palm branches really began to symbolize the nation of Israel. And at this time of writing, uh, the nation of Israel was really this autonomous state within the Greco-Roman Empire. And so you can see, as an autonomous state, there was probably conflict between Israel and the Romans. In fact, there were revolts and riots, and sometimes it would turn deadly, in fact, as both of these uh, entities were trying to exert their dominance and their power. In fact, it's believed that during the intertestamental period, there's a guy by the name of Judas Maccabee, who led the Maccabean Revolt. And he drove out all of these Roman soldiers at the time to rededicate and cleanse the temple. And as he did that, the people met him with palm branches, kind of symbolizing for their minds, this is uh, the, the nation of Israel. This is a political savior and a political king. And so you can begin to see that as they rush out to meet Jesus with the palm branches, they're thinking perhaps Jesus will be our political savior. Perhaps he'll be our king. And what's so amazing about it is that Jesus really meets their expectations, but then kind of tweaks it a little bit. Because what does Jesus do? Well, it says that he comes in on a young donkey. And it's not even his donkey, it's a borrowed donkey. And this is important because this was prophesied some four or 500 years prior from Zechariah, saying the humble king who's going to come in, the humble king is going to exert peace inside of the entire world. But I think about it, what was their expectation if we were to kind of see it today? Okay, they were probably thinking he's going to be a political savior, he's going to lead a revolt, and we're going to have kind of this, this nation back. They probably would have thought, if it was here and today, uh, imagine that this political savior would have rolled into a capital city riding in a tank. But instead, Jesus is coming in with like an Uber. Okay, or maybe we can even push it further. He's coming in on one of those rented scooters, you know those birds or those lime scooters? Right, could you imagine if he had like one of those bells, like, bring, bring, like here he comes. Like, I would pay money to see Jesus coming in on a bird scooter. Would you not? Okay, but that's what we can begin to see. It's like, wait, that just kind of shattered my expectation or my understanding or my assumptions of what I thought Jesus would do. That wasn't necessarily a symbol of power, if you will. And so here's what we could ultimately say about the crowd and their response to Jesus. We could say our false expectations of Jesus can hinder us from truly understanding Jesus. 
Okay, let me say that again. Our false expectations of Jesus can hinder us from truly understanding Jesus, who he is, and why he came on this earth. And so you think about the crowds, they really had this idea that he's going to be a political savior, and so they met him out there waving palm branches. Uh, But it's not only that, I, I think that this correlates to us as well, because our expectations of Jesus are really crafted through our own life experiences. And so we can really have this picture or this expectation or this assumption of Jesus in place. And that picture, if we're not careful, can actually impact how we live our lives, the actions that we perform in our behaviors. In fact, I remember when I was in seminary, I had a professor who showed us these different cultural caricatures of Jesus. Okay, one of the pictures that he showed us was hippie Jesus. Okay, And the hippies back in the 60s is what he was saying, really built up this picture or this expectation of Jesus. And there it was, it's like Jesus with like glasses holding up a peace sign, okay? But they had this picture which then impacted, influenced how they lived their lives. Uh, The other caricature was of Jesus as the CEO. And it was this idea of Jesus wearing a suit and tie and looking really sharp and dapper. But because Jesus was this CEO type figure, then that impacted how they lived their lives. And so you can understand, we have to be cautious the expectation we have in place of Jesus. And if it's a false expectation, then that could lead us into different actions and lifestyles. In fact, I just want to invite you to reflect on it and reflect on this question. Do I bring Jesus into alignment with my life? Okay, do, do I do what kind of the, the crowd did here where, where they thought Jesus was going to be a political savior uh, to where that impacts actions and behaviors and lifestyle? Do I have this picture of Jesus and I say, Jesus, I'm going to bring you into alignment with my life? Or do I bring my life into alignment with Jesus? Do you see how the two of them play off one another? Do I bring my life into alignment with the person and within the work of Jesus Christ? Do I allow him to direct me and guide me in all things? Uh, Now, here's why this is important. We just wrapped up a sermon series called This Is Us. And it's really the the wording and the phrases that we believe that we have here with our purpose and our mission and our values. And we said that our way of life, that we as a church want to help people be and love like Jesus. Okay, we want to be like him. We want to live like him. We want to love like him. We want to honor God like Jesus honored God. We want to love people who are widowed and orphaned, who are on the fringes. We want to love people who are hard to love because that's what we see in Jesus. We want our lives to mirror him. And so we want to allow his picture and his personhood to speak to us rather than trying to bring in and shoehorn our own expectations into Jesus. And so what we ultimately said is that Jesus is fully God and he's fully human. And then to drill in a little bit more, we said that Jesus is 100% gracious and 100% truthful. We see that in John 1. The word became flesh, full of grace and full of truth. But I think if we're not careful, as we think about kind of bringing our own expectations and our own justification for our behaviors, we can kind of elevate one of those two, grace or truth, into an unhealthy way. Uh, Allow me to illustrate. Uh, Maybe for some, you elevate the graciousness of Jesus and disregard his truthfulness. And so the way that this looks is sometimes you think to yourself, yeah, you know, Jesus is gracious, he's loving, he's saved me, but then it's just that. Uh, You know, I'm not going to change my life. I'm not going to change my style or or my habits or my behaviors. And so we ultimately use Jesus' grace as a license not to change our lives. Well, what about the other side? Okay, it's grace and truth. What if we elevate the truth and disregard the gracious part? Uh, Well, then we might say, well, you know, Jesus is truthful and he gives us uh, direction and understanding for how to live our life. And a lot of times that can manifest itself in in sort of morality. 
And, and we can have this self-righteousness about ourselves to where we might look down upon people who don't live up to this righteous, truthful standard that we have if we disregard the grace of Christ. But what we're called to do is allow the complete picture of Jesus to fill our minds and to create and craft a picture for us. That he's 100% grace and he's 100% truth. He's gracious in the fact that he stoops down and he meets us right where we are at. That he comes down into the pits with us and he gives us new life. And yet he is also truthful. He gives us direction. He doesn't want us to stay there, but he wants us to have a life lived in abundance, mirroring his life as well. So he gives us this truthful picture, empowered by his grace and empowered by his Holy Spirit, to become more and more like him so that we might be and love like Christ. And so I just want to encourage you. What is your picture? What is your expectation of Jesus? You know, maybe if you're here and you're like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm going to be honest, I don't really have a whole picture of Jesus. Well, in that This Is Us series, we actually took a whole sermon on it and we talked about who is Jesus. I invite you to check that one out. It's not too hard to find. You go to our, our website and you look for the sermon titled Jesus. Okay, it's right there. Okay, so I invite you to check that out. But then what is your picture of Christ? Uh, what is your false expectation or your truthful expectation? If you're sitting there and you're wrestling with it, then maybe this week, here's your invitation. Open up the book of John, the, the, the book that we're reading this morning. It's about the middle of your Bible. There's 21 chapters in it. If you read three chapters a day, it'll take you eight to 12 minutes. And by the time you get to next Sunday, seven days later, you will have a better, more robust understanding of Jesus. And you'll begin to do away with those false expectations and assumptions and have a true understanding of who he is. Uh, that's the crowd's expectation. That's the crowd's response. But now we come into this second response. We come now into the disciples. These are his friends and his followers. And, and here's what it said about their response. We, we go back to John 12, 16. It said, at first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things have been done to him. Now let's hold that there for a second. Because I find so much hope in these verses, especially in this first part. Uh, because it says, at first, his disciples did not understand all this. Okay, so who were the disciples? Uh, these were his friends. These were his closest followers. I mean, they literally spent three to three and a half years with Jesus, traveling around the, the nation of Israel, going up from Galilee down to Jerusalem. They, they ate with him. They walked with him. They talked with him. They sat front row, understanding his teachings. And yet it says right here, they did not understand what was going on before them. And so I think a lot of times for all of us, not just Christ followers, but for all of us, we can ultimately say this truth. Uh, sometimes uh, Jesus allows us to wrestle in the tension of the unknown. Okay, we can, we can say this truth. I'll say it again. Sometimes Jesus allows us to wrestle in the tension of the unknown. Okay, have you ever asked this question? Right, maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, yeah, you know what, this is me. I I'm wrestling in the tension of the unknown. Maybe you think about your relationships and you're sitting there and you're like, yeah, I I've got, and, and, and uh, you know, in my significant relationships or my relationships with kids, I've got conflict or just hardships or just difficulty and I just don't know what to do. I'm, I'm kind of sitting here and I I'm just wrestling in the tension of the unknown. Or maybe you're just sitting at work and you're like, I thought that this was gonna go easier. I thought that this was gonna go better, but I just don't know what's happening. I don't quite understand. I, I can't quite grapple with it. And so as we sit in this tension of the unknown, right, the next question that we ask is this, what do I do when I don't know what to do? Okay, you ever ask that question, what do I do when I don't know what to do? Okay, I, I personally, I mean, I ask this question maybe every other day, all right, if not every day. 
What do I do when I don't know what to do? God, my kid is not sleeping. What do I do when I don't know what to do? All right? And we find ourselves in these moments. But I think the truth of the matter is, the answer or the solution, it's so easy to understand, but it's not always the easiest to act on. Because while the solution is easy, the experiences that we're in, a lot of times are really, really difficult. And so I want to just give an illustration for you. Um, just a you know, show of hands, how many of you have ever had an issue with technology? Yeah, every single hand, wherever you're at joining us as well. Okay, you know, you think about it, your TV screen goes blank, okay, the copier or the printer, it doesn't print out, or heaven forbid, your Wi-Fi is ridiculously slow. And then you ask, how long, oh Lord, will this happen? So what do you do? Okay, you go to your IT director or you go to your grandkids who have a little bit more wisdom about this tech stuff. And what is their typical response to you? Yeah, you got it. Have you tried the sledgehammer yet? Right? Have you gone out full office space on it? No, no, no. What do they say? They say, have you restarted or have you reset the device? Right? Usually we have the answer within us, but sometimes it's so hard to act on that answer. It's so hard to act on that solution. But let's be honest, sometimes we don't have the answer. Sometimes we don't have the solution, but we need someone there who can guide us and who can direct us despite the hardship, without the uncertainty, and despite the tension that we are in. And so when I think about it, I I go back to the disciples because it says they didn't understand what was happening right there in the moment. But there's one important word. It, It said only after Jesus was glorified did they realize Okay, so it was after the fact, they were kind of looking back in hindsight, only after Jesus was glorified, after he was crucified, resurrected, and glorified, did they realize. And so it's this truth that Jesus has really deposited the solution or the answer with inside of us, and as we kind of wrestle through that tension, that, that, that tension is actually unearthing that solution for us. It's unearthing the truth of who Jesus is, and it gives us so many principles that we can live by. And it gives us a promise. In fact, if we were to go back to that that idea that we had here, we said at the very beginning, we said sometimes Jesus allows us to wrestle in the tension of the unknown. Okay, sometimes he allows us to go through that and that tension helps to unearth what's going on. But here's the promise. But he never abandons us in the process. Okay, sit on that truth. Even just for a moment. We might be navigating a conflict, a tension, an unknown, but Jesus never abandons us in the process. Uh, the reality is that the greatest present that we have right now in the present is his presence. Uh, so what do we do when we don't know what to do? We go back to the disciples. We realize his presence. And when I think about it, I think about how this story continued to unfold with his disciples All right, He was there with them the rest of that week. He was there with them uh, continuing to, to teach and, and guide them. But then we see his crucifixion, and then he's laid in a tomb. But then after 40 days, he continue, after his crucifixion, for 40 days, he continued to spend time with them, dwell with them, uh, abide with them, and teach them and direct them and give them wisdom and understanding for what was before them. And so maybe for some of you, you're sitting here, and you know, if you're honest, because of experiences creating expectations for us, maybe some of you are sitting there like, yeah, I, I feel abandoned. I feel abandoned by Jesus. But, but here's the truth. Whatever tension, whatever unknown we are wrestling with, that doesn't dismiss Jesus' presence. No, no, no. What it means is that he's actually moving into that presence with us. And so I want you to just hear this truth about Christ. As we think about, we need someone who is wiser and can direct us in this time. Uh, Know this truth, that Jesus 
brings calm to our chaos. Jesus brings clarity to our confusion. Jesus sees things that we don't see. He hears things that we don't hear. He knows things that we don't know. And so what I want you to do is I want you to just kind of pause for a moment. I want you to just quiet your heart. I know we've got a lot going on um, most days, and it's, it's hard to kind of just sit and be still. But I want you to think in your heart and in your mind, what tension, what unknown are you navigating right now? Just sit in it and think about it. And then what I want you to do is, in your mind or in your heart, I want you to just kind of call it out. I want you to name it. Is it conflict with a spouse? Is it uncertainty at work? Just sit in that and understand it. And then I want you to just realize Jesus' presence. Hear these words. Jesus wants to help you. And so friends, let him help you. Allow his perfect wisdom and provision and presence come alongside you in this time. Because we realize the greater the problem sometimes means the greater his presence. The problem that we run into doesn't dismiss his presence, but it invites it even more fully. And so that's the disciples. They're sitting there like, man, we don't understand. We don't know what's going on. What do I do when I don't know what to do? Realize his presence. We've seen the crowd's response. We've seen the disciples' response, but now we come to this religious know-it-all's response as well. These are the Pharisees, and we can see what happens here. We go back to the text, verse 18, it says this. Uh, Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, uh, went out to meet him. And so the Pharisees, they said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Okay, so we're honing in on this idea of the Pharisees. Who were the Pharisees? Uh, The Pharisees were the religious know-it-alls. Now, they really, just a little bit of context for them, uh, they had massive amounts of Scripture memorized, if not the entire Old Testament. Okay, you think about the Ten Commandments. Maybe you've heard that. They kept those faithfully, but then they also added potentially up to 600, north of 600 commandments. And so they were very, very good at following through, and they knew it all. But yet, at the same time, uh, they were so far from God, and they were the ones that had the most conflict, and they were the most combative towards Jesus on his earthly journey. And so whenever we look at what they're saying, uh, we can actually see their remarks. They they kind of say, uh, see, look, this is getting us nowhere. You can almost sense the helplessness and the hopelessness in their voice. Uh, They're kind of sitting back uh, at, at arm's length away from Jesus, and they're saying, look how the whole world has gone after him. And what I find so fascinating is I don't think that that is a very, uh, it's a phrase that happened by accident. Because when we look throughout John's gospel, when we look throughout his, his letter, he actually uses a particular word repeatedly throughout. So I actually kind of find their words here a little bit humorous and paradoxical. Uh, and so they say, look, the whole world has gone after him. The whole world has gone after a false teacher. And so in John's gospel, he uses the word world. In fact, you know this, perhaps the most memorized verse in all of John, John three sixteen. for God so loved thee, Yeah, you got it. You can come up here and preach with me in a little bit if you want to. But we can see that right here, that they have this idea that the whole world has gone after Jesus. And so uh, Jesus came to seek and save the lost, right? Every tribe, tongue, and nation would come to know the saving work of Jesus. And we're going to celebrate that for Maundy Thursday and Easter this week. So we encourage you to join us for it. But what we ultimately see in the the words of the Pharisees is that they're speaking out Jesus' purpose. Okay, did Jesus want the whole world to come after him? Absolutely. So they're speaking Jesus' purpose. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Yet while they are speaking it with their mouths and with their lips, their hearts are far from him. 
And so if we were to really put words around the religious know-it-all, it's really a warning. Uh, We can have Christian experiences and still miss Jesus. Man, I, I feel so convicted by this. We can have Christian experiences. We can show up on Sunday. We can read our Bible. We can serve. We can do all these things, and we can still miss Jesus. I mean, just think about it, the Pharisees for a moment here. They're there in Jerusalem. They're, they're celebrating Passover when this lamb would come in, this, this actual lamb, and they would slaughter this lamb, and it would signify the punishment of sin placed upon them. And then we see Jesus, the, the, the lamb, walking into Jerusalem. And we know this because earlier in John's gospel, he said these words about Jesus. He said, behold, the lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the Yeah, you got it. And so they're there at this religious festival, and what happens? They miss Jesus completely. I mean, I feel just like, man, that's, that's a warning shot that I need in my life. Uh, man, I hope that I don't show up to just religious experiences, to uh, worship times, and just miss Jesus completely. But I think that we can ask the question, well, why? Why is it that they're missing Jesus? Well, whenever we look into this story, drill in a little bit more, we can see that in their interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees, that Jesus kept saying this one thing time and time again. He says, it's because of your hard heart. So what we can also see is that they had a heart that was distant, that was away from Jesus, that was lacking in passion for Christ. And so as we think about a reflection question that you can really relate to, it's this, when it comes to Jesus, am I hard-hearted or half-hearted? Okay, let me just give you a little hint. There is an option C that I'm going to talk about here in a little bit, so hopefully it's not either or, but I want you to honestly reflect. When it comes to Jesus, his grand entrance into Jerusalem, into my life, am I hard-hearted or half-hearted? So what are these? Well, hard-hearted, like the Pharisees, it's a stiff heart where the truth just bounces off, okay, and they they just are rejecting Jesus completely. But when it comes to a half-hearted, I mean, that's not fully in. Okay, it might look like indifference or apathy. You know, for some who might have a half-hearted nature or a half-hearted posture, they might show up and say, you know what, I know everything there is to know, all right? Or they might show me, they might think, you know, this worship service needs to go a certain particular way, and when it doesn't, I'm just going to get frustrated or annoyed, all right? So is it hard-hearted or half-hearted? And you know, I think really when we look at the undercurrent of a hard or a half-hearted heart, it really is the source of pride and indifference. But when I think about this, I'm reminded of one of my professors in seminary. I mean, he taught the Bible and theology for 60 plus years at a master's and a PhD level. And he knew a thing or two because he had seen a thing or two this professor had. (laughs) Hopefully I don't get copyright infringement on that one, but okay. And so he knew the Bible like the back of his hands, and yet he would say these words, every time I come to God's word, I learn something new about Jesus. Man, I want that to be true about my life. And so if it's not a half-hearted or a hard-hearted, what is it then? I think the solution is this. It's, it's simply praying this prayer, God, give me a responsive heart. Maybe that's your prayer this week. God, give me a responsive heart, a heart that is uh, open, a heart that is adaptable, a heart that is available to you and to where it is that you're leading us. And I think that this is true for Easter because what if this holy week, what if the next few days, we simply just said that prayer, God, give me a responsive heart. God, show up. God, amaze me. God, wow me. God, blow my expectations. Give me a heart of availability so that when I come to Thursday, when I come to Sunday, I don't just show up kind of going through the motions, but I can see you in new and profound ways. I can see your goodness, your love, and your truth revealed in ways that I had never seen before. But God, don't give me a heart that is hardened or half-hearted, like the religious know-it-alls. Give me a heart of availability. 
So in conclusion, I just want to return to that question at the beginning. How do you respond to Jesus's entry? How do you respond? Is it like the crowd who had an unmet expectation? All right, they had this false expectation that Jesus was supposed to look a certain way. If that's you, I invite you, lean into the true understanding of who he is. Are some of you navigating just this tension of the unknown and the uncertainty before you? If that's you, realize his presence. And maybe for you, if you've got kind of that hardened or half-hearted heart like the religious know-it-alls, simply put, just pray that prayer. God, give me a heart of availability. Give me a responsive heart. And may all of us walk through Easter this next week, this holy week, with a sense of awe, adoration, seeing and savoring Jesus, his goodness, his glory, and his love on display for each and every one of us. Would you please stand with me as we pray together? Gracious Father, we thank you and praise you that you sent your son, Jesus, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that you moved into our proximity, that no matter what it is that we're navigating, hardships, uncertainties, unknown, tension, conflict, that that doesn't disregard your presence, but that gives us a heightened sense of your presence. So may our eyes be open to that. That whatever it is that we are navigating, wherever we might be, God, may we sense you in newer ways today, this week, this month, maybe even this season. And so, Lord, give us a heart of awe. Give us a heart to understand what it is that you're doing in our lives and in the world around us. May a hard heart not be a hindrance to you, but may we have a heart of availability to see the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And so, Lord, we ask that you'll be honored, that you'll be praised in our lives, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our work, in all spheres of influence for our good and ultimately for your glory. We pray this in the beautiful, matchless name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.